coming to get you, Barbara. My chair is snapped at the lower end, Ooh, and no. uh, it's about to fall over at any moment. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> um, so let me stop some of this audio coming in. What? My chair is breakdancing, my wife says. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I can fall over at any time or get horribly injured by a spring popping up through my anus. That's a phrase you never want to hear. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Do you have another do you have another chair that will not uh, affect the anal cavity uh, on I I feel like I need that uh, the turtle from Rocco's Modern Life would be like it's just going to plunge right up through my anus. It's going to be blood everywhere. My mother was right. <laughs> just gonna tell me that I'm gonna be in the hospital and be like, I told you that was gonna happen right through the anus. I'm like, Mom, in front of my friends, don't talk like that. I don't want to hear about my body parts. <laughs> it's very Woody Allen awkward, nervous voice. Yeah, yeah, quite, quite a bit. Uh, although I, I'm pretty sure that the voice that would come after the uh, puncture wound was inflicted would be very much the same. Yeah, but no, here's the sad part about it is you'd hear this and a, oh, not again. <laughs> what a start, huh? What a I know, right? Out the gate, firing gun. Oh, man, what a week. What a week like any other week. It's all times a treadmill these days. Yeah, yeah, a treadmill that uh, for some reason uh, is not plugged into the wall because it ain't going nowhere. Yeah, yeah. So how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I am finally to the point where I have uh, time off, kind of. So uh, it's going to give me a lot of time to finally get our D&D episode uh, edited, which hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, the first several episodes will have been released. Woo! Yeah. Um, but besides that, uh, I, I'm, yeah, besides that, it's been pretty, oh, actually, no, there is something else that's really, uh, really cool happened this week. Um, so, you know, I made a game, you know, I made bot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which I have over on the shelf over there. Yes. Uh, well, um, the version I gave you is a, uh, I don't know what's the word. Uh, not not it, kind of a template version of the uh, of the game. So uh, I have somebody who's been helping me a little bit more, helping me on the uh, inspiration and uh, guidance side more than you know anything else. Anyway, the point is, um, I built a box for it. So now uh, I've decided I'm going to do tuck boxes instead oh. of doing a two part box. And uh, I've gone through and I've finished up the rule book, which um, will be now it's going to have to be card sized. Got it. And then uh, slipped into the tuck box. And once it's slipped into the tuck box, it uh, all will be good. Well, uh, 
I can't wait, man. I want to just go forward and it would be fun to produce other games. I would like to work on a ton of games. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have a bunch of other ideas. Um, Caleb and I were uh, talking about a game that uh, we want to make using his doodles. Yes. Oh my God. I would pay money to buy that game. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to say too much on here. uh, Now I'll wait until after the podcast to explain what me and uh, Caleb talked about, but uh, it's, I think like, like bot has a huge potential uh, with a large audience. I feel like the game that uh, I want to build with Caleb has the potential to be a rival to games like cards against humanity and uh, the cyanide and happiness game and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be a good party game. Very good party. I, here's the thing is Caleb has an art uh, that for whatever reason, he doesn't like to, actually produce stuff it's more like he does it out of boredom or a hobby but he doesn't want to make it like a thing but it has a specific style i think people would love products anything with his work on the product would be phenomenal yeah no i agree and i I try because his uh disdain for games in general um i tried to the idea that i gave him uh i tried to make it as as were as least work intensive for him as possible because there there's a lot of things that i would like him to do as far as making original content for it mm-hmm. but it's really not necessary because of the amount of content that he currently has you know no i believe so so yeah I'm so that's very uh, looking forward to that project and anything working with him um but mentioning that came into mind remind me that uh you never played Slay the Spire, did you? No, I've never even heard of that. So Slay the Spire, it was a computer game. It was on PC. It's on like Switch and other consoles now. And it is, it's a dungeon crawl with a, a multi um, path, a multi-lane path from the bottom up to the top of a tower. And you go through like four of these. Okay. And at the, each um, item along the path it represents an event and it can be combat. There's a store. Uh, there's mini bosses you fight. There's uh, events that are random events that happen. And a lot of it's told through just, you know, options at the bottom, but everything involves building a deck of cards. There are four yeah. characters and the four characters play very differently and have their access to different card sets. And then there's like universal cards that anybody could use kind of like, how you know like colors of mana so to speak but the way that the characters work is that there's like a a physical sword swinging uh dps tank type of character who heals themselves uh there's this flowing robes that throws knives and poison so it's like a rogue deck there's a um a robot that has spheres and you put different elements into the spheres and every turn they do whatever their element is. So like electricity shocks people, uh, frost builds up defenses, etc. But it's a roguelike. So everything that happens is, is completely randomized and you can get screwed over in a run or you can build enough momentum to steamroller the rest of the game. You oh, nice. die, you start at the beginning of the tower, you die. I've died like 300 times. And every time you, uh, you unlock new cards into the drop, uh, sets 
So the loot tables have cards added after every so many runs, but also there's like a hardness to it. If you're, if you don't think very intelligently about how you build your deck, you, you quickly die too many cards. You can't pull what you need. It's just like magic, you know? Yeah. You have a, you have an economy. Well, they are making a board game version. Ooh. And the Kickstarter is not up yet, but if you go to like contention games, um, they have up on the main page Slay the Spire. So when it when it comes out, I kind of want to talk about that. But the the video game is awesome. I suggest you check it out. It reminds me everything I love of deck building like Magic the Gathering back in the old days mixed with a dungeon crawl. Wait, uh, you said contention games? How do you spell that? Con- C-O-N-T-E-N-T-I-O-N, contention games. Contention games, slay the spire. Okay. Okay. This looks um, this looks kind of neat. I don't I don't know if that's a company that I think that's a board game company who's adapting it, but you can look up Slay the Spire and like see how the actual video game plays. Anyways, uh there's something about that like roguelike deck building draw game that I think is underutilized. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think um First of all, I think deck building is overutilized on uh, cell phone games, but underutilized yes. on computer-based games. And speaking of uh, roguelike deck building games, I don't know if you've seen any of the trailers for the new Magic the Gathering game that they're going to be releasing. No. Yeah, they. Uh, so I've seen I've seen some of the some of the footage from it so far, and it's it's very similar to what you were just explaining. You choose a planeswalker. You play as a planeswalker um, and you choose basically a color mana and you build a deck and you draw cards. And as you cast a spell, you lose that spell and you get a new spell and you build decks as you go along. And as you get further and further, you get cards of other colors and so on and so forth so that you can then become a multicolor planeswalker and build the planeswalker in the direction that you want to go. And from what I've seen, it's almost like a four player. Actually, it looks very much like Diablo. Like if Diablo and Magic had a baby, that's interesting. And is this what is this is a card game still? Uh, no, it's it's uh, exactly like Diablo, but you instead of having spells, you have you know yeah you, ha- you have the uh, uh, one two three and four to cast your spells, and then they revitalize. Well, instead you've got a deck of cards that show up as one two three four, and you cast them as you as you please. So one two three and four are are never the same thing. It changes because once you use the spell, you discard it, and it's repopulated with a new spell. Yeah, huh. that's fascinating. I'm gonna yeah. have to check that out. Also, uh, something else really neat I read in the news this morning. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Wizards of the Coast was bought by Hasbro. I thought they were owned by Hasbro like a while back. Mm-hmm, Is mm-hmm. this a recent development? No, no, no. They 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 were bought by Hasbro a while back. Oh but... yeah, the the economy thing. I read the thing where they said that they make more money than the actual games make. Yep, yep, exactly. So now uh, Hasbro has made Wizards of the Coast its own brand. Uh, alongside Hasbro because they're they they need to split it up, which means they might be splitting up the stock as well, which would be kind of cool. Yeah, you should invest. Fucking a, you should invest. Fucking uh, absolutely, Wizard of the Coast. Because first of all, you know they've been doing very good since Critical Role. Critical Role sparked, and that was what six years ago. Wait, what's Critical Role? What's Critical Role? You don't know what critical role is. Critical role yeah. is the new craze. 
Uh, okay, so let's go to a long story short here. No, uh, let's just first thing first long story. is I want to, um, I got to start figuring out where they started. So 2015, 2015. Yeah, okay. So Geek and Sundry is, uh, was its own production house for a while. I don't know if they're still around or what's going on with them, but they produced a lot of shit. They have a lot okay. of famous people that Felicia Day uh, is part of their like founding and they do shows. They, they basically have like a full week rotation with a scheduled shows like a television show would have or a television channel would have. And so they would put on different shows and critical role popped up as one of the shows that they were promoting. And Critical Role is uh, Matthew Mercer, who is a famous voice actor and was the voice behind, um, you know, McCree and Overwatch. He does a ton of anime. Apparently, he would go uh, when they were at like conventions with the other voice actors, because you go to Anime Con, there's all the anime, anime voice actors, the video game voice actors. And it's kind of like a small niche community, because when you get in, you work on the same projects together. So a lot of people know each other in the industry. So they would meet at Matt's house and they would play Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, and all yeah. of them are famous voice actors. Okay, yeah. So I, I, I do know what uh, Critical Role is then because we've talked about that a couple times on this podcast. I, I know I'm gonna I, keep talking about it because yeah, no, I watch. I'm like, <laughs> I know you. You send me so many things from Critical Role. Um, I know. I, 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 was, uh, I was, I was trying to figure out. Uh, I thought it was a Wizards of the Coast uh, thing, so I wasn't sure. I, that's why I was like, kind of. Here, here's the thing to keep in mind, right? Yeah. So. This this was when Twitch was building up. Twitch and YouTube had this was 2015, you know. So some of these companies were going into full stride. They were at their height, and uh, they came together every week and they played this game. And then they decided they'd start streaming it. So Geek and Sundry took them on. They streamed it, and the numbers were like were through the roof. They okay. they meet every Thursday. They do on uh, they. Now it's they have their own company. They got so powerful they were able to leave Geek and Sundry, and now it's the critical role, you know, company. Uh, and they do everything in house. They have their own production crew, cameras, everything. And in the beginning, it was it was a lot more limited. Early episodes were you know just like one camera and the Geek and Sundry and a bunch of them sitting around. But the point is, is that the the numbers were huge. People want to watch a good game of Dungeons and Dragons because that's not a thing. Like it's very you know, some guy in his garage with a camera experience, which is what YouTube brought us over the years. Nobody gave a professional polish D&D show. Uh, so they had the Geek and Sundry numbers and then their numbers kept going up and up. And it allowed them not only to bring attention to Dungeons and Dragons for people who normally wouldn't do it. People who are just on YouTube, happen into some nerdy stuff come across this channel and then, Hey, I should play it because it is fun. The way they're doing it is a very uh, high level experience. Matthew Mercer is a very great dungeon master. He has voices, he has music, he has character and all of them uh, working in the industry with characters and doing voices, you know, put in a very solid polished experience. Yeah. Well, 
this produces numbers, which allows Wizards of the Coast to put out so far two books. Uh, I think the first one was actually done by Green Ronin, who does a lot of third party uh, stuff for Wizards over the years. And since third edition, Green Ronin was producing a bunch of their own material based on 3.5. I think they did 4.0 and they're now on fifth edition. And uh, Green Ronin produced the Taladori, which was the main campaign. And then uh, Wait a minute. Wizards Wait. of the Coast produced a wild mount and they're both in the same world, but, but they're by two different companies. Wait, uh, so we should clarify something here because uh, this is something I was not um, apprised of until recently. When you're talking about Wizards of the Coast right now, you're talking about Wizards of the Coast after they bought TSR. So Wizards of the Coast is not only Magic the Gathering, but also Dungeons and Dragons, which now explains to me your connection to Critical Role. Okay. Right. So um, after TSR, uh, well, TS, that was, that feels like ancient history. I know I'm feeling old these days, but uh, Wizards of the Coast, when they produced third edition, it was after the TSR thing. And well, no, because Wizards didn't, uh, Wizards of the Coast didn't buy Dungeons and Dragons until fourth edition, I believe. I'm pretty sure it was either, it was either fourth edition and then Wizards was the one that produced fifth or they bought it after fifth came out. It was not, it wasn't at third because Hmm. I know, I know Wizards had a bunch of things that they changed in it, but I'm pretty sure it was pretty close to where fifth edition was now. I want to say that it was already fifth edition because. One of the first things, one of the first things that they did when they released it was like almost a year later, they started releasing magic tie-ins where they uh, allowed you to play as the guild. uh, What was it? Um, uh, Ravnica, uh, where they released the Ravnica book, and you could play one of the guilds. No, it was TSR because what happened was that uh, it was sold in '97. So TSR was bought in '97, and then. Under new management, they changed everything about second edition, which was the old Gygax way of doing things. And third edition came out in 2000. So three years after they bought them, they produced third edition. No shit. I didn't realize that uh, Magic was that big back then. To like, I, I could have swore, and obviously I'm wrong because you just looked it up, but I could have swore it wasn't until like the mid-2000s, like maybe 2005, 2006, that they had bought them. I didn't realize they owned them for that long. Mag- Magic was a decent size back then. I mean, it was definitely a big enough company for millions of dollars to go through hands because uh, they they negotiated uh, for what, upwards of like $30 million. The, the, the secrets behind that story or that TSR had bad management and they kind of ran themselves out of business and they were flailing desperately to try to find a way to keep themselves solvent and wizards stepped in and took over. So it wasn't like wizards, we, you know, they were, TSR wasn't like a super high profile company worth so much money. It was, uh, they had a, a known product, but financially it was, it was a mess. It was absolutely interesting. Um, yeah, we, we go in the story, but we're, we're not here for the story of TSR Wizards. What I'm talking about is that Green Ronin uh, produced a book for 5th edition Taldori, which is set in a uh, critical role. And then Wizards of the Coast took them kind of, I want to say in-house, but started doing a lot of projects that were officially sponsored by Wizards of the Coast. So critical roles numbers, you know, millions of subscribers, probably a good 400,000 people concurrent every Thursday. There's a ton of numbers going on. So Wizards are like, we'll produce a book for you. And that came out last year, I believe. But 
the critical role series is at 115 episodes for the first campaign and 124 episodes for the second campaign. And we're talking two to four hour episodes on Twitch. That's a lot. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through the first campaign, but (laughs) the event of critical role popping up not only showed people like a way of doing it that was more fun and more, you know, exciting and very well polished and professional, like the stories are very epic, moving, interesting human stories. And those numbers generated a boom and Wizards of the Coast in the last, when they produced fifth edition, because Matthew Mercer started on third edition, I think Geek and Sundry was a, then they went to Pathfire, Pathfinder. And then at the very beginning of the televised version of Critical Role, they switched over to 5th edition. But 5th edition blew up because people would get caught into the Critical Role, you know, net. And then that would lead them into a game that they may have not played before. Well, so Dungeon Dragons had a huge boom. Well, also, 5th edition was much easier entry level. Because like third edition, it was, you know, you had to roll to attack, roll to see if you hit, roll to see if it went through the armor, roll to see if it did damage, roll to see if it was critical, roll to see. Whereas fifth edition was roll to see if you hit, roll to see if they dodge, done. Like they they made it much simpler, whereas, you know, an entry level game would scare anybody away in third edition and fifth edition. It was like, I mean, you could bring your grandmother into the game and she could understand the rules enough to play the game now. Yeah, yeah, and then you have the the factor that um, Dungeons Dragons doesn't really advertise like magic, kind of, but D and D, you know, everybody knows what it is. You don't directly have to take ads out, but also because of and and again, the financial model of producing books uh, is is not really big for multi billion dollar commercials in the Super Bowl. Well, this also re advertising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so as far as the advertising, like everybody did know what Dungeons and Dragons was mainly because the U.S. government did that whole thing where they were like, if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, then you're probably a terrorist. The satanic panic, man. Yeah. um, But also one of the things that Magic the Gathering had and the reason it got popular is because they hit it in. So when it first came out, it came out around the time that it was really big uh, comic book cards where you would go and you read read comics because comics were really big in the early 90s and then you would buy all these cards and collect them just like baseball cards but they were on the shelves in comic book stores and magic the gathering targeted a board game slash comic book based audience so i remember my first experience when alpha came out for magic the gathering was on the shelf at a comic book store and you could pick them up in walmart yeah, now you can pick them up in Walmart. It's right on the same shelf with all the comic book uh, or with all the uh, baseball cards and everything. But um, that I was leading into the Dungeons and Dragons thing. When I was younger, I never saw any Dungeons and Dragons stuff in comic book stores. You had to go to either a Barnes and Noble or you had to go to a specific game store in order to see it. And now almost every well, comic book store that I go into has an entire Dungeons and Dragons section. You, uh, you want to know what my first role playing game was in history? I'm actually was, kind of afraid to ask. Is uh, I want to say 1990, 91. There was a small comic book shop on the corner uh, in San Bernardino, where I grew up. And I went into the stores, looking through comic books. It's probably this would have put me at about 10 to 11 years old. And in the back, they had Marvel 
hero superheroes role-playing game by tsr really and i if you've never seen this thing no. okay so this this was the old tsr this was the uh, late 89 88 is when it first started and this was the, like by this time it was the advanced version that they had come out in the 90s this was a box with Marvel superheroes on the front. You open it, you had two rule books. One rule book was the basic rules that everybody would learn. It had a weird shifting chart, depending on your power level and what you were rolling against that would change the probability of like how you roll. It, it's an interesting system you should look up sometime. But there was a second book, which was the Dungeon Master's list of all the villains and heroes. And then okay. there was a bunch of uh, um, that thin paperish cardboard and you would print, uh, cut out a bunch of characters that were a three piece fold and you would fold them and they would stand up like a little triangle. Oh yeah. I remember those. And you would have probably a good 50 characters in little paper standups and they had a huge, uh, laminate, not laminated, but like a very soft plastic, very colorful fold out map. One is, you know, like a city streets. One is like a park in New York City. And it had all these adventures and it was a very lighthearted, fun experience. Interesting. I did not know that they partnered with Marvel, but I guess back then it kind of made sense because Marvel was licensing its characters to everybody and anybody who would give them a dime. That's right. Marvel has actually had, I think, Four role-playing games so far. Well, I know now they're very big with hero clicks. I don't know if that's a role-playing uh, thing, but I, I remember the hero clicks thing. Oh, they yeah, they've been doing hero clicks for ever. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Mar Marvel role-playing has had this was the first one that came out back with TSR. Then there was a period of time there they did one that had um, it was Marvel it was Marvel Universe and they had these little. Uh, beads or not like gems beads it's the kind of counters that you buy uh at stores and you like in role-playing circles you use them as counters anyways okay. they're little jewel bead things and uh, that you had a it was a resource you would gather those as like infinity stones and then spend them to like do things for the character oh neat that's kind of cool it was weird it was very short-lived it had maybe a couple of supplements and then went belly up heck i don't even know what is the company that put it out I think it was directly done through Marvel itself. Well, that explains why it fails in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh... um, saga based. Anyways. Um, so saga based was the first edition. Then there was that edition with the beads. And the third edition was produced by Margaret Weiss, who is a uh, author. I think one of the Dragonlance or something like that. She did a ton of story content uh, over the eighties and nineties. Margaret Weiss produced a ton of stuff. She's a great writer and she worked with TSR and did a lot of Dungeons and Dragons fiction. And hmm. um, she started her own company and created a, a license uh, called Cortex, which is actually what we're going to be using on our uh, Friday games, uh, a version of this. Cortex was developed and licensed to do like, uh, they did Leverage, the TV show as a role-playing game. They <gasps> oh, did, I love Leverage. Uh, that was such a good Supernatural, show. Supernatural, uh, Smallville, um who else did they license they did marvel heroic and they did another one and then margaret weiss company folded and they decided to move on and they sold the license to cam banks cam banks is the guy who kind of helped revolutionize third edition and up uh in the, the like in role playing in general he writes a bunch of great articles of role playing but uh worked for marvel for a period of time 
producing you know what we know as the modern version of Dungeons and Dragons and uh, he turned it into a very different version of a Marvel game where characters could finally be on different power levels and work together in the same group which I think Mm. is you know, the thing with, uh, with role with superheroes specifically is they don't change, you know, like Spider-Man's yeah. just yeah. always Spider-Man. And so he'd write these, him and uh, Rob Donahue would write these articles about how, you know, how do you give them uh, growth? You give them instead of vertical growth, because they don't just get more powerful, like games tend to power creep. Uh, they it's la- it's horizontal it's lateral it's like you know they get a new house or they get a new outfit or they have different friends and contacts that goes outwards from the character and say the character just getting more powerful but how does that build into the storyline because like with uh with power creep it makes sense because you're going against bigger and more powerful enemies so in yeah. superheroes since you don't get to become more powerful you're going against the same powered enemies the entire it, it, that doesn't make sense to me like i i mean i guess no, i guess it's, it's you're always essentially as powerful as you are but like spider-man for example you know he got the venom suit which is an upgrade it's like changing the game you know giving the character something that's new but then is not directly a vertical power spike. It is, you know, they build out the world around the character. They have, uh, you know, different things happen, different suits, different changes, money, rewards. The time when his public persona got revealed in Civil War, now he's on the run or he's working for the government program. Like you can do these different things to a character without making them more powerful. I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a philosophical distance we will have to shelve for another day my friend yeah i suppose i suppose point is uh i got way off track there that was my first game i've been playing since 90 i was always pulled in to be the dungeon master everybody i would say you have all the books and you read because you're a dork so uh come run the game because none of us want to do it and uh that's 30 years of being the dungeon master and never getting to play in other people's games. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty much the same way. Like my friends, I, I was the one who had to be like, Hey, let's play this. And I had to, because none of them were really into dungeons and dragons. And I was kind of, I guess, quote, forcing them. Um, I would have to be the dungeon master because of course they'd have to, they'd want to play. Cause nobody wanted to spend the time to build the world that they were going to be in. They just wanted to build the character and then just exist in the world. Um, playing the game that we're playing through the uh, through the podcast, uh, which um, yeah, playing the game that we're playing through the podcast is like the second or third time that I'm actually playing a character. So nice. it's still kind of still kind of a new new uh, experience for me. I mean, I would like to play more often, but uh, giving you the chance is I'm I'm hope we can get you into more games or at least yeah. you know give you an experience that you don't get much yeah yeah kind of like uh, dmt does oh actually <laughs> back speaking, to the joe rogan podcast speaking of uh dmt and having nothing to do with dmt uh i started microdosing oh wow did i tell you about that did i tell you i was gonna I, do that that's not something uh we we should give out facts and names on this podcast however uh-huh. uh you definitely should shoot me a text message or something because it's been a lonely world Okay, well, we'll we'll talk more, I guess, offline about that. Uh, although it, it doesn't really matter because it's legal in most most places. 
Oh, that kind of microdosing. Okay. Yeah. Dep- depends on what kind. Because uh, yeah, I'm I'm a Terrence uh, McKenna, you know, Hunter S. Thompson slash Robert Wilson or Robert Anton Wilson. Slash, I could just list off all the the drug addicts that I pay attention to. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> I've I've always said I would never do anything that wasn't natural. So, oh yeah, no, absolutely. You got to be yeah. very safe. Yeah, hundred percent. I know uh, a lot of uh, I do have since I work in the film industry, I have a lot of friends who uh, use other substances. Uh, I actually have a DP friend of mine that is very heavy into acid, and I'm like, ooh, yeah, that's that's just not my game. I well, I just acid and DMT specifically because, but to to voice Terrence McKenna, you know the the perceptions of the mind are openable doors. Yep. Uh, I'm totally into that vibe. The thing is, of course, safety. You never know what you're getting and responsibility. And it's not pleasant. It's like getting slapped in the face and told you should be ashamed of yourself while you puke yourself into a diuretic coma in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, it's, but, uh, but it's a bad there's... experience, but it's very flushing, relieving experience. Yeah. And sometimes you can learn about yourself, at least. Oh, absolutely. The experiences I've been told because I, I like I'm, I'm not just saying this because we're on the podcast. Um I have legitimately never done those things because I will not touch anything that's not uh, not 100% natural. But I know my experience with mushrooms definitely it was it was a good trip and then turned into a very bad trip. But it taught me a lot about myself, even though I thought I was going to die at the end of it. Yeah, and that's that's a key. It's like the ayahuasca thing, which I think is the the primal root. You know, before there was the casual drugs where everybody's just doing it to party, the reality was that there's that one person who lives alone in the woods who knows the plants and knows the animals and is able to put together a concoction that reaches deep inside your soul and presents you with the judgment of your own inner consciousness. And people would come from miles around to these shamans and these medicine men, and they would say i want to understand my place in the world yeah and they would make these concoctions and give it to you and instead of a fun happy trip you have to come to terms with the reality of a a material plane and a soul within the body and your connection to the zeitgeist of millions of people around you and history and your ancestors and it's not a happy place Because there's a lot of terrible decisions and regret and guilt and shame. And part of it is about flushing out that and saying, look, it's okay. You don't need to be caught up by the bad things. You need to be focused on making a better world and making the good things. So it releases a lot of baggage. It helps you work through it. But it's a it's like climbing Mount Everest, you know, which brings it back to Jodorowsky and the Holy Mountain. That whole film is just about the, the symbolic concept of you have to climb the mountain to understand the hard road. And but when you get to the top, you realize there was no road or mountain that it's just you. Yeah, not where I thought you were going with that. Well, that's but, but yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I was I, I thought you were going in the direction because I've, I've heard somebody say that it's like getting a phone call. And once you get the message, you need to hang up very much. So the phone call message hang up is the great analogy because it's about it's about a message. And it's once the message is delivered, you can't just repeat the message over and over. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, like sometimes the message changes. I know I know some people who uh, 
who've uh, done things and then they've gotten the message and they've stopped. The problem comes in when people keep going back for the message when there isn't a message. This is yeah. a, a lot of a lot of symbolism to basically say you shouldn't abuse drugs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, so my experience with shrooms was more like the. Um, do you ever watch one of the house hoarder shows? And they just mm-hmm. come in. They're like, "Why the why the fuck do you have this? You know, or the yeah, joy yeah. lady? Does it yep. spark joy? You come oh, in God, and you I hate say, that lady. Hey, you remember this memory from childhood that you won't let go of? Why are you keeping on to that? Get it out of the house and they clean your mind and you remove all your baggage. Yeah. See, and that that I think is great. I know in um I think it's Seattle, uh, where where mushrooms are legal. Um, it might be Seattle. I it might be wrong about that. But anyway, there there is some place where it is legal and they have uh psychologists and therapists that are working with mushrooms in order to help guide people out of depression and childhood trauma and PTSD. And apparently it's better for them or the, 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 uh, uh, the, the percentage of positive outcomes from the therapeutic things that they're doing is higher than it is with actual uh, the meds that they've been selling. Oh, absolutely. Amsterdam is ahead of the game. And from these foreign countries, they've been doing this longer than we have here. And it is, it's, it's just like, it's any substance is has a purpose. It's like a tool. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people misuse the tools. Uh, ecstasy, for example, is MDMA, which was you developed as a um, couples counseling therapy drug, what? which is, yeah. It, so MDMA was developed by a um, chemist as a way of allowing people to break down uh, their tensions against each other and focus on their relationship it of course, you know, is what it is as of right now. And the a lot of times, if you buy it, it's spliced because people are idiots and they sell, you know, concoctions to you. But in a laboratory environment, there were places in foreign countries, I would say like Amsterdam, where they still will do these. Uh, they will take two couples and they will give them this, and then they work through their problems, and then it breaks down the barriers, just like alcohol. You know, it's like a social uh, lubricant is that this drug was developed entirely for people to get over their social sexual episodes in bed and to develop a happier couple. Interesting. I'm going to have to remember that next time. I'm You take too much, you die. Yeah. But, but (laughs) but the next time I'm in a a relationship where there's some tension, I'll just be like, Hey, let's just do a little MDMA and uh, we'll, uh, as long as it's clean and it's safe, what you do in your bedroom is all up to you. Uh, but all drugs are like this. You know, LSD was developed like LSD is a very long, interesting story about development. And the guy who made it has his own, you know, whole episode worth of stuff you could talk about. But for me, that substance is like um, in a beautiful mind where it's a relation between analytical thinking of, you know, a lot of people will hallucinate and see stuff. But there's also a mind process where you look at unrelated data and numbers and they all start linking together. Yeah, it's it's strange. But these processes are all, you know, they're developed for a reason. And in certain circumstances, they work very well. But you don't know things like allergies or if it'll cause adverse reaction. Yes. Uh, A lot of people have a lot of very bad traumatized stuff in their head they can't let go of and they won't work through. So that brings it up. All these people with bad trips, you know, a lot of it's like stuff in their subconscious they can't let go of. Which, I mean, it's it's good for them to, for that to come up and for them to be able to let it go. Because that's one of the things that they do in therapy is they try to make you 
almost relive the situation so you can focus on it more and find the things or find the triggers and things that I don't know. Uh, basically, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm talking out of my ass here because I've only done therapy a few times, but I, I my I have family members who have done therapy and they talk about how um, they're asked to you know go back, think about a specific subject, spend a week thinking about it, come back, talk about it, and it it kind of relieves a lot of the tension from it. So, so to bottom line for everybody who listens to this, uh, we're, we're having a fun time. We're just bullshitting and talking about random stuff. But the reality is, is that it's about the betterment of yourself, becoming a better person. We get, I got into psychedelics because I felt like I was in a dead end and I had no idea how to escape the twisted, cruel, vicious cycle of social circles, of guilt, of egotism. Understanding ego death is not, it, it sounds weird on paper. You say ego death, you're like, you're going to kill yourself. Like, no, no, no. You've got to understand what I'm talking about is in a, in a very Buddhist perspective or Taoist perspective, you are your own worst enemy. You get in the way of all your success. If you listen to any of those motivational speakers in the gym, you know, like, again, we're back to Joe Rogan territory, is that <laughs> you hold you back. And until you sit down with yourself and go over your problems and try to make them better as the best way you can, you're always going to keep yourself down. Yeah. So you come to these things like psychoactive uh, substances because they're a, sh a sh not a shortcut because I think that's that underwhelms the truth of what they do is they offer you routes that you were previously unable to explore. And your job is to explore these routes to find a way to get over hurdles, which exist inside your mind. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I think though, a lot of people just, I wouldn't say use it as shortcuts. I, I feel like a lot of people use it as, um, in, instead of using it as a guide toward betterment, they use it as a uh, substance to uh, kind of like people use alcohol. They, they use alcohol a lot of times in order to ignore the problem. Like you need oh, to absolutely you need, you need it, to face the problem and and not use uh, the substance to ignore the problem, I guess is what I'm trying to say because meditation. Yeah, I because... suggest meditation in place of drugs because of safety reasons, legality reasons, but it's, it's the same thing. It's adjustment of perception and your goal, like people can say, I'm not happy or I, I hurt in some way, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and I'm just going to take this thing because it goes away. But we, and this gets into a much larger discussion I could write a thesis on, that we live in a Band-Aid solution culture who addresses the symptoms. I have a headache, I'll take some medicine, it goes away, tomorrow it comes back, I'll take some medicine, it goes away. And this is a repeating cycle because you know pharmaceutical companies wanna sell you a product. But the reality is if you go in and find out why do you have a headache, maybe you'll find out your diet needs yeah. to be changed or you have a tumor in your head or something like that. The root core cause needs to be addressed. Yep. Then all the symptoms go away. You don't have to target the symptoms. You have to target the cause. You know what? Yeah, I, yeah, I just want to stop you for a second there. I think, uh, I think a lot of people know that inherently, but the, um, the 
community that we live in or the society that we live in, we're not taught that. We're told that, but we're not taught that because when you go to a doctor, they ask you what your symptoms are and then they give you drugs for the symptoms. They don't actually do a deep probe to find out why. And I, I say this because I, uh, a while ago, I was dating this girl who was getting headaches and she was getting headaches fairly regularly and they got worse and they right. worse and worse and worse. And when she would go to the doctor and she was eating really bad food, like it was sugar, it was carbs and it was like like an entire bag of Swedish fish in a day. I mean, Jesus Christ. And I, I kept telling her, I'm like, you know, you should probably go see a nutritionist and talk to them about this first, because all the doctor's doing is giving you higher powered Tylenol and higher powered, powered aspirin and everything like that. But in the two years that I was with her, she just went on more and more meds to treat the headaches rather than whatever was causing the headaches. And oh, absolutely. I, I mean, by the time, by the time uh, our relationship was over, she was getting a shot weekly uh, in order to remove the migraines. And I'm just like, I'm like, you're, you're going to be taking a shot for the rest of your life. That's not a solution. The solution is what's causing this. Let's fix this. It was a, there's a great book on diet and sugar uh, that I read a while back. I can't remember specifically which one it was, um, but they talk about, you know, diabetes is easy to cure. Yeah. It's super easy. All you got to do is just stop eating sugar. And everybody's like, oh, that's crazy. You can't, that's nuts. Then why would I stop eating sugar? Well, because if you hit your head against the wall, you'll get a headache. It's yeah. very simple. We, we live... I, I go back to planned obsolescence. Uh, planned obsolescence was introduced in like about the 20s and the automobile industry said, how do we get people to, because, you know, if we give them a product they have for the rest of their life, uh, we won't have a, be able to sell them anything else. Yeah. So we need products to be disposable so that they have to come back and buy another product. And that pushed uh, what we know is like the 60s suburbia, the 80s commercial era when the television came out companies apple's like the worst example of this companies are designed to make crap that breaks so that you buy it again and we've been living that for a hundred years reinforced from you know go to american psycho that sort of reinforced psychopathy of the 80s and the coke and the credit cards and neon hawaiian shirts is that materialism the god mammon has descended upon the plane and everybody's concerned only with the physical realm which is the card the devil from the tarot uh which represents that we hold on to things instead of thinking about emotions or concepts or the spiritual realm we are stuck with the physical objects which further goes into the Kabbalic theory of Klipoth, because the Klipoth, which we joke about as being like monsters or bad guys from outside of time, really just means a husk, which is an, an empty replication of a physical existence without a soul. Um, and I, I would actually disagree with you on all that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, and <laughs> you mentioned Joe Rogan multiple times. I have this theory because of Joe Rogan. Um, I have this uh, theory that, yes, again, I took from Joe Rogan, that we are basically caterpillars. We are caterpillars leading ourselves toward a technological rebirth. And the reason that we have things as planned obsolescence, such as like Apple, where we need to have the newest and the best and so on and so forth, because the older things are falling apart, is to push us toward better uh, technology newer products and a higher sense of consciousness and that higher sense of consciousness in this situation would be an organ a techno organic consciousness that we would eventually butterfly into hmm. 
is an interesting is an interesting statement. I I will add to this that uh, for a long time we'll, we'll get back to the main thing we talk about, but for a long time I have had this theory that uh, evolution is a process of failure and resource need that selects out a successful path uh, to existence. And that this process biologically happened over millions of years to selectively create humans. But humans reached a point where they've kind of stopped evolving physically. In fact, where medicine and everything were like trying to make people stay, you know, within a range that we're used to. And that our attention has delivered from the slow process of millions of years of biological DNA evolution into technological evolution, which goes at a much high. Well, first it was social evolution. We created things like societies because it's, uh-huh. it's just plants and animals. There's organisms. It's all biology. We develop social structures. Those go much faster than biology do. And they change and they grow just like biology. Successful cultures die Uh, or successful cultures survive, you know, unsuccessful cultures fade out. Mm -hmm. And this weeding process on a biological level, then a social level, now we've introduced ideological, technological levels where we are developing philosophies and we're also developing uh, computers that develop themselves. They go towards, you know, the singularity, the, uh, um, oh God, the basilisk theory, which is that, you know, the AI in the future wants to make sure you ensure it exists and it has time travel uh, so it monitors you and if you don't make sure that it comes into existence then it's going to punish you for not bringing it about or trying to actively stop it from coming about yeah Rocco's Basilisk it's a terrifying um, what's the word for it that's a mindfuck what you just said that is a total mindfuck right there SCP Foundation has a a word that they came up with that I love, which is an idea that's so dangerous you're not allowed to know about it because the moment you know about it, you're affected by the thought of it. Kind of like quantum physics. Kind of like quantum physics. Yeah, the moment moment that you can observe something, it is no longer observable. But it is actually interacting with the universe. You just are not allowed to observe it because once you do, it stops. They refer to it as a, a crypto hazard, I believe, or cognito hazard. It's a cognito hazard. It's an it's something that if you're cognitively become aware of, you are affected by the effects of it. And Rocco's Basilisk is developed as a kind of a a thought experiment, kind of like, kind of like the game. Like, oh, you just thought of the game, you lost. As long as nobody mentions the game, you win. It's the same concept that as soon as you're aware of the idea that you should be helping and a sentient AI come into control of all of recreation, uh, as soon as you're aware of that, if you don't choose to help it, you are now against it. Does that mean that you've chosen to help it since you're still here? <laughs> I, I don't know, man. You, I you either to... just proved your theory or you've just proved it wrong. One of the two. It all depends on whether you are an AI shill or not. Well, we'll we'll find out when we die and we realize we're in a matrix program. Gotcha. Gotcha. So we are in the simulation then, I guess. Uh, Yeah. Cognito hazard. Fun word of the day. (laughs) Uh, So I I believe technology, you know, evolves very quickly and it is it replaces the physical in the fact that biology takes forever to develop. 
we're reaching a point where we're going to have nano machines that will create universes we can't even comprehend. Yeah, no, I, I, I can definitely see that. I can definitely see that. Um, yeah, it's very. Heavy. We're all over the place with this. So, <laughs> Joe, from Joe Rogan theory, you think planned obsolescence is part of the caterpillar effect of pushing humanity towards a new ascentive form. Uh, but what about the like greed? What about the simple mean evilness of corporations who screw people over? Uh, well, it's it's the same thing because uh, the whole idea of survival of the fittest. Every organic thing is about. Uh, so so think about as a father, think about you and your family. What do you want? You want your family to exist, propagate, and be successful. It doesn't sure. matter about everybody else around you. Like, yeah, you know, it might suck that other people around you may not succeed or may not exist or whatnot, but it's all about you moving your family forward. So a corporation being greedy and getting that money and producing more technology or being able to consume more technology is the same thing as trying to propagate that technological future. So Grant Morrison had an explanation when he went up to, oh, I think it was Grant. Kathmandu and said that he was abducted by aliens. And this, this ended up in the invisibles. Like if you read the invisibles, this stuff's in it, but it, he talked about how these creatures, which were globulous uh, shapes of like liquid metal or not metal, but they look like that would take him outside of the time construct into the fifth dimension and would show him that Outside of the time construct, things don't change or age because they're not affected by the time. So these creatures create these bubbles of time and put souls in there and use the process of time to uh, refine the souls in the karmic cycle, sends the souls around and around like in a dishwasher, you know, like a washing machine. And that humanity is not one person. Humanity is this uh, centipede. And he's like, forget, forget the metaphysical limit or, uh, you know, concept, just ask yourself, where were you when you were 10 years old? Where were you when you were five years old? You know, they exist, but you can't see them now because you're viewing things through slices of time. But if you looked at all of time, you would stretch out like a centipede filled with arms and legs into the distance of all the places you went and did all the way up into your parents' ovaries and sperm and all the way up into their parents' reproduction, all the way up into their ancestors to the first animals that crawled out of the ocean. So outside of time, the perspective of of life biological on the planet is this massive endless centipede of body parts through time that is growing towards producing uh like you know a car you compress uh um, minerals into a diamond so you're essentially making a soul diamond out of these souls in the machine that produces this zeitgeist of existence and biological function on the planet and once it's taken out of the time machine or the time bubble it will be, they're going to take it out when it becomes an ascended creature that has gotten rid of all the baggage of time. Wow. Yeah, he did, he did drugs. He, he um, just did. A lot of that actually sounds, was he a Scientologist? Because a lot of that sounds oh. very Scientology. No, he, um, he went to Kathmandu and dropped a bunch of drugs. And then he was like, there's these 300 steps up this mountain uh -huh. that's really steep. And if you get to the top, on a single breath, you'll have enlightenment, <laughs> which you'll you also know, be dead. 
You'll be delirious. You'll definitely be delirious. So he, he of course, like dropped mushrooms and then went up the stairs and tried to hold his breath. And at the top, he got abducted by aliens and was shown the time construct and explained that time is a fertilizer and our souls are a plant. And that's why when we go through childhood and we go through all of these repeating karmic cycles of the caterpillar, you know, going from that shape into the new shape, it's us learning hardship to refine our soul until we reach an ascendant point and then they're taken out of the time structure gotcha okay so that that definitely makes sense um but it makes absolutely zero sense uh at all but considering it came from grant morrison i i get it <laughs> i get it the guy was a genius uh, as, uh, as well as being completely and totally batshit crazy well maybe he's the sane one and you're the crazies it could be. It could be. I definitely don't feel very sane right now. Yeah, but uh, taking what you said of, you know, meanness is a product of refinement process. I um, I have a short story collection I've been trying to publish for a year, and the Rona just destroyed all my time and creativity. And uh, I'm going to publish that soon. One of these stories, I think it's the leading story we're going with, is called The Second Coming. And it's about a guy who uh, starts turning into a, a cat, like his body starts fattening and elongating and spinneret starts spinning a web around him. And Wait, uh, did you send me this? I probably did. Yeah. I think this was the story. I think the one that you were um, voicing, going yeah. to be voicing. Yes. The audio was horrible. Now that I have a better audio situation, I'm going to re-record it. But that was an interesting story. Yeah, it's, it's the same motifs, and you could buy this story once we publish it. Uh, is well, we'll definitely is, make sure that there will be links on the, the website for this. And the, the joke was, it, it's a lot of stories are based off, you know, what if concept, like Outer Limits, like, what if this happened? What would that be like? So this story is just, what if Jesus came back, but the world was not ready for it? And so he turns into uh, he turns into a blur, a giant blob of flesh. The government tucks him away in a secret facility, and it sends out this psychic uh, resonance that drives people crazy because they can't handle what it's saying, uh, which goes back to the baggage and not letting go thing. And it uh, ends up bursting open, and like a beautiful uh, moth thing pops out with wings like rainbow, you know, color fur and big breasts. And uh, it's <laughs> neon Jesus. And neon Jesus is just like super, it's like, you know, Mr. Rogers is just super nice. Just like, how? oh, you want to take a piece of my body? Sure, which piece do you want to take? Like very helpful, uh -huh. almost to an irritating point of being naive, friendly and helpful. <laughs> and uh, so they, they do what the government would do and they just chop it up and sell it to the corporations for technology. As one should do. Yep. It's very, very sad. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I think our culture is so caught up in a congestion of its own little perspective. They are in their own little bubbles, consume, destroy, you know, given the base emotions. And the reality of life is that it's beautiful. You just do it. Yeah. It's a process. It's difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Life is a is a, a highway. I want to ride it all day long.
<laughs> oh no let's not start saying it on a podcast yeah uh well, i do stuff to try to better myself and i picked up the phone and it said you need to be ashamed of your bullshit and you need to get your life together and uh i quit a lot of bad things i was doing and my general perspective is less being anxious and more you know like look this is just reality and we do our best to make it to help each other, family, uh, culture, society, we hold each other up because it's a dark place and we navigate it with our light of love, the power yeah. of love. I, I, I mean, I, I've, only done, I've only done that once. And uh, uh, when I hung up the phone, I kind of came to a somewhat similar conclusion. It, it made me a lot more tolerant of people who um, were previously annoying um and situations that would frustrate me um i had a new perspective on you know that whole that whole idea of um you know have you ever have you ever heard of that thing um where people in traffic who are assholes and you know you they they honk their horn at you and then of course you flip them off and then they flip you off and so on and so forth and everything like that have you heard that whole thing where they're like well you know maybe they just had a bad day so give them a little bit of space and maybe their day will be better Oh, absolutely. Everybody's just in a very bad place because we built a machine that causes stress and suffering. Yeah. Well, that, that whole thing is a, is a nice thing to say, but it's a whole different thing to actually practice and to actually understand it and practice it because it makes you feel better um, as well as making the other person feel better. And I think that's a big takeaway for people is the, the common misconception. And this goes uh, with, with psychedelics, but it also goes with religious, uh, going to church or doing prayer or meditation or anything like that. It's none of it's easy. It's not like a magic wand you wave or a button you push and suddenly it's all better. It gives you the tools and the path, but you have to tread it yourself. It's hard work. It's lonely. I mean, look at like AA and NA and stuff like that, what they teach, you know, whether or not you agree with it, they're tools to a process and none of them are like, it's just given to you or easy. It's a long, hard road of hard sacrifice and work, but that's what creates a better life. And what makes people truly happy is actually putting effort in and getting results. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Happy Little Scream podcast. If you like what you heard, you can find more on all major podcast providers. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. There are links on our website, happylittlescreams.com. Please like and subscribe. And if you're feeling even more generous, you can support the podcast through Patreon. Your donations help keep us going. Until next time, good night and happy screams. This is the end now. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.